Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Scrubbed In. My name is Saheb Rafai. I'm an NIHR Doctoral Fellow and SD4 Specialist Registrar in Ophthalmology, working at Great Ormond Street Hospital. I'm very grateful to the Scrubbed In team for inviting me to deliver this session titled How to Present, Publish and Win Prizes. Thank you very much for tuning in. This is, in fact, my first ever podcast experience, so I hope you find it interesting and helpful. I consider myself extremely lucky, as I love what I do. My work has attracted 43 papers and prizes along the way, plus national media coverage, and I've been invited to present internationally in 14 cities, most recently as a visiting scholar to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, mere months before the COVID-19 UK lockdown. This is all largely a testament to the support, guidance and foresight of my supervisors and mentors, so the credit goes to them. My current NIHR Doctoral Fellowship Award conveys a research grant equivalent to over £420,000, which funds my research project aiming to help children with rare disease, as well as my research training, including PhD fees, and salary. Therefore, it is an exciting and attractive option for attaining a PhD as a specialist registrar. I'm pleased to begin the first part of this session, How to Present. This content mainly pertains to presentations in a conference setting, but many of the principles are broadly applicable to other settings. First, we'll discuss oral presentations, followed by poster presentations. A good starting point is to attend conferences and watch other people present to get a feel for what is involved and this gives you the opportunity to see what you feel works well and what doesn't. Preparation is key. You must know your material, setting and audience. A lecture to 200 medical students will be completely different to a workshop for a small group of emergency department staff or a virtual Zoom presentation to a research group all examples of presentation scenarios I've found myself in. I would strongly encourage you to visit the venue in advance, to familiarise yourself with the stage and setup, and picture yourself delivering the presentation to prepare and troubleshoot any potential hurdles. For instance, where will you be sitting? And what is the route to walk to the stage? Are there any stairs to get up onto the stage? Is there a radio microphone, handheld microphone, or is the microphone attached to a podium? If there is a podium, will you have a built-in screen to change your slides or is there a laptop or computer? Will a clicker or laser pointer be provided? Top tip, if you do like using these, then invest in your own laser pointer and or clicker so there's no risk of not having one. The principle of visiting early also applies to virtual meetings. Try using the platform in advance wherever possible, such as Zoom or Teams, to ensure you're familiar and happy with the platform, the screen size, how to load your presentation and change slides, and check that you're happy with the way you look on the screen, along with your backdrop and so on. Next, we need to cover slide design. Usually, there are guidelines provided by the meeting organiser, which should be followed. Generally, the aim is to translate your scientific abstract into slide form in an engaging and informative presentation. This typically includes background, methods, results and conclusion. 
but be sure to check the presentation guidelines to format your presentation appropriately. Aim for approximately two slides per minute. This is just a rule of thumb to help you run to time and not overwhelm the audience. For instance, if I need to present a 50-minute lecture to students, I'll include no more than 100 slides. And so far, this rule has not failed me and I have not significantly overrun when presenting. This is especially important when presenting at a large scientific meeting with tight time slots, such as 10 minutes per talk. Less is more. Aim for fewer than 25 to 30 words per slide and make sure you use a nice sans serif font that looks good on a larger screen and is easy to read, unlike Times New Roman for instance which looks better in print. A picture tells a thousand words. Include large purpose-built figures that are easy to read. By this I mean don't simply screenshot your figures from a Word document and drop them onto your slide. Instead, try to redesign your figures, for instance, a bar chart or scatterplot, or at the very least, the annotations, to ensure that everything is easy to read on the slide and aesthetically pleasing. You can include royalty-free stock images, such as those from Pixabay, or if you are using clinical images, ensure you have the relevant patient consent and permission, including image credits where applicable. Finally, I would strongly encourage you to record yourself and reflect on your performance. Professional athletes do this, actors do it, musicians do it, so I don't see why it isn't more common amongst doctors and medical students giving presentations, and personally I have benefited hugely from recording and reflecting. Next we will cover presenting slides. First of all, keep calm. Calm is a superpower. It can take years of training to be able to access this ability readily, but it is an incredible facility to have and will allow you to enjoy presenting your work to others and they will enjoy listening to your work and learning from it. One approach is to practice your presentation as much as needed until the content comes naturally to you and also to do a simple breathing exercise before it's your turn to give your presentation. Simply focus your mind on your breathing and press mute to the surroundings around you and you should notice your breathing becomes easier and any stress or tension simply melts away from your body and mind. Make sure you plan your outfit in advance. This shouldn't be something that you worry about on the day or even the night before. Your outfit should be clean and prepared at least several days beforehand. You should aim to dress in something that looks smart and makes you feel confident. For instance, I have a navy suit reserved for big presentations and whenever I put it on I automatically feel confident. So it's great to find a winning outfit that can give you that confidence. With virtual presentations, a lot of people have had their work cut in half here and they only dress their top half smartly and secretly wear their pyjama bottoms off camera. Personally, if it's a very important presentation, I will wear suit trousers just in case I need to move around and also to have my shirt fully tucked in. However, if it's simply my weekly research meeting or teaching sessions, then I must confess I am on team pyjama bottoms or jogging bottoms all the way. Now, this tip is really important and was given to me a long time ago by a consultant ophthalmologist. Rehearse your opening line word for word to start strong. 
I've seen so many presentations where the presenter may be highly knowledgeable, but unfortunately, they get on stage and stumble over their opening line which they hadn't prepared, and they can lose most of the audience before they've even really got started. My opening line to this talk was simply, Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Scrubbed In. I rehearsed this so that I could deliver it well and hopefully engage the audience listening in. And I use this simple tip for every presentation I give. If it's a short presentation, for instance, five minutes, then you could even script the whole thing. I like to adopt more of a hybrid approach where I have a general direction in my mind, but I'll expand on certain topics in more detail if I can see I've got the audience hooked and intrigued on that topic. But if the audience doesn't seem too interested in a particular area, then I'll cut it short and move on to the next slide. Interestingly, comedians use the exact same tactic where they have to quickly drop material that isn't getting many laughs and move on. Personally, I never use notes in any presentation setting. I'd rather improvise than use notes, even if it's a long presentation. But everyone is different, everyone has a different style. So if you do like to use notes, just try to keep them as brief as possible so that you're not constantly referring to them. Next, we'll talk about posture. Nobody engages an audience at a conference with their head facing downward, either buried in their notes or looking at their version of their slides on a small screen below them. So remember, keep your head up and engage the audience with eye contact and open body language. If it's a relatively small audience, you can engage members of the audience with eye contact at an individual level. Whereas if it's a very large audience, for instance, in a multi-tiered conference center with balconies and so on, you can engage different sections of the venue by directing your eye contact and moving around to different locations. This brings me to my next point. Your feet will never be glued to the ground when you're delivering a conference presentation. So use the space available to you. If you have a clicker, and a portable microphone, you can walk around the stage and own the stage and physically engage different sections of the audience. Again, a little bit like a professional comedian at Live at the Apollo, for instance, or charismatic motivational speakers. This takes practice, but it can be highly engaging if done well. If the microphone is attached to a podium, you can still move your feet and turn the direction of your body to face different sections of the audience. Finally, stand tall and project the words confidently rather than slouching and mumbling quietly. Remember that you are the presenter and your slides come secondary to you. You should be the focus of the presentation and the slides simply act as a backdrop to help navigate through the material that you will deliver. Another highly effective way of keeping the attention of your audience is simply by varying your volume, where sometimes you speak a little bit quieter. And then, for the next point, you crescendo and deliver your content with gusto, and then you turn the dial down again. And this can keep the audience's attention. Obviously, I exaggerated this technique here, but trust me, I've heard very senior professors use this technique with even more emphasis, and I must say it is effective. Another thing I sometimes do is turn the lights brighter or dimmer, especially if I'm giving a long lecture to undergraduate students. Don't be afraid to engage the audience. If I'm speaking to a smaller group, I will even talk directly to members of the audience or ask questions as we go along. But even if it's a large audience, 
you can still engage the audience with your language. For example, think back to the last time when you were in clinic and this happened. Or imagine you're in your clinic and the following patient walks through the door. Or even just simply picture the scene. This sort of language can capture the attention of your audience. Finally, try letting the slides slightly lag behind you. In order to do this, you have to know what is on your next slide before it comes, which is the case if you've memorized your slides or simply because you have the presenter view turned on, which gives you a preview of your next slide. The reason for doing this is to keep the audience's attention on you and not purely on your slides. You begin to deliver the content first and half a second later, the content appears behind you on the slide. Finally, we'll talk about answering questions. Again, keep calm. Provided you've done your homework, it is possible to successfully navigate through the question and answer session that often follows your presentation without embarrassment, even if you don't have all the answers. First of all, try to anticipate the likely questions that come up and think about good answers to these questions in advance. A good way to figure out many of the likely questions that may come up is to practice with a variety of seniors and peers and even non-specialist or lay audience members to check whether your material can be understood by a non-specialist in the field. Again, going back to our first point about preparation, a presentation to a room full of specialists will be pitched at a totally different level to the same subject presented to non-specialists or patients and members of the public, for example. If somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, be honest and simply state that you don't have the answer, maybe your team hadn't considered that particular point and it's something you can say you'd like to take back to your supervisor and team. Or maybe you don't have the answer to that question but you can steer towards your area of expertise and tell them something you know from your work which is related and likely to interest them. Whatever you do, do not lie and make things up as this will not end well. Instead, be honest and try to steer towards your area of expertise. When you get really experienced, you can make a mental note of the areas of your subject that couldn't be covered, often due to time, and you can predict with fairly high accuracy which points the audience might like to touch on and ask more about for more information further on. I'm going to briefly cover poster presentations too. A poster is a popular way of visually presenting written and graphic information and can even be interpreted as a standalone piece. But typically, there will be one or more opportunities for the presenter to engage directly with a dynamic audience. This can result in highly valuable discussion with peers and experts in a more conversational setting, which can help shape and improve your paper which may follow. As with oral presentations, try to attend poster presentations to get a feel of what is involved and reflect on what you find works well. First, read the guidelines provided by the organiser for poster size, formatting and content. Typically, your aim, again, is to translate your abstract into slides, i.e. background, methods, results and conclusion. Remember, less is more. Don't lose your audience in a sea of words. Instead, try to draw them in with large and engaging purpose-built figures. 
Sometimes it's possible to simplify complex ideas in a more simple infographic that walks the audience through your process. Whether this is a virtual e-poster or physical poster session, the same principles apply to poster design and presentation. And again, I'd suggest you consider recording your performance and reflecting on how this can be improved. When the big day comes around and it's your turn to present your poster, keep calm. Plan your outfit in advance. Briefly walk through your poster. You may be presenting to judges and the organiser may have given you strict guidelines such as a five minute time slot to present, followed by five minutes of questions for example. Engage your audience with open body language and eye contact. Anticipate likely questions through practice with colleagues and seniors. Finally, generate discussion with your audience, which typically may be single members or small groups browsing multiple posters. This could be your big opportunity to get valuable reviews of your work from colleagues or seniors, even experts in the field, prior to writing it up. Some presenters even include their social media handle or a QR code that takes their audience to their professional web page or study registration web page, for instance, so you could consider this if applicable. And finally, don't forget to have fun in the process. To conclude, the key to successfully delivering an engaging and informative presentation is to seek guidance from colleagues and seniors. Reflect on what works well in your own presentations and those of others, and of course, practice, practice, practice. Next, we'll move on to the second part of this podcast, how to publish. I'm going to start off by saying something a bit controversial. Publishing a paper does not automatically make someone a better doctor. And by the same token, you can be an excellent doctor without ever having published a paper. There are many senior doctors who have never published a paper. It's interesting to see a growing emphasis on publishing papers at an increasingly junior level. Even a number of medical students are publishing first author papers these days. And I feel this is driven by the increasing emphasis on publications amongst the selection criteria for competitive jobs. Personally, I've had first-hand experience with the AFP, ACF, DRF, and also the OST1 ophthalmology application where in recent years they have even looked at the impact factor of the journal and the authorship position of the applicant and they multiply these numbers together and produce a publication score. Unfortunately, due to the highly competitive nature of such posts, this has sometimes led to publishing for publishing's sake and even bad science which must be avoided at all costs as this can cause harm I think the best way to approach this is to develop a genuine interest in your desired field, develop a good relationship with a supportive supervisor and department, and develop a genuine desire to solve problems through good science in order to benefit patients and healthcare in general. So back to this section of the podcast, a good paper has a clear objective, conveys a clear message, follows a logical framework, and adds genuine value to the field. The first thing you should do in your journey to write a paper is to read papers to develop an interest in this particular area in question and to broadly familiarise yourself with the language and writing style required in scientific publishing. Next, ideally you need a supportive senior colleague with a strong track record. 
Once you have identified someone who fits the bill, try to determine when and how they are most accessible. Generally, human beings are happy and pleasant after they are fed and rested. So approaching someone after they've had their lunch can deliver wildly different results to approaching them when they're still stuck in an overrunning clinic and haven't had a lunch break. Another thing I've recognised patterns in is when a consultant is more likely to respond to an email. It might be that they come in early certain mornings for clinic and they have a window of opportunity to look through emails at half eight in the morning, for instance, when the first patient isn't ready to be seen yet. Make sure your email lands in their inbox during this window of opportunity. Or there might be a golden hour where the consultant, for instance, has an admin session on a Tuesday afternoon and starts looking through their emails at 2 p.m. If you send an email at the wrong time, there is a danger of it being lost in the sands of time. So try to be tactical in when you send your emails. Everyone is different and they may even give you instructions as to how and when they prefer to be contacted in relation to your project. There are opportunities to have a more formal project arrangement with a named supervisor, such as during a fourth year project or intercalated BSc as a medical student, or during an academic foundation post, academic clinical fellowship, and so on. But don't worry if you don't have this formal arrangement because all you really need is a will and a way. A supportive and knowledgeable senior colleague is the way. Often such an individual is a key holder that can unlock further opportunities for you. So when you identify such an individual, aim to nurture a strong and healthy relationship with them. If you become well known in a department through being actively keen and showing a genuine interest, often numerous opportunities may be offered to you and you might find yourself spoilt for choice. I've often found myself in this situation and it's important to try to identify which work would be right for you and help you grow and which work you may have to politely decline to protect your own time and well-being. A good way to gain some experience in writing papers is to write a case report or correspondence as these are shorter articles and easier to complete for a beginner. Your supervisor is the best person to advise you on this. One option if you have a limited time frame and no allocated project with ethical approval is to learn how to conduct a systematic review as this requires no ethical approval and provided it addresses an important research question this is likely to get published because systematic reviews tend to attract a lot of readers and citations so lots of journals really like systematic reviews. I want to pause here and tell you something very important about authorship, which many people unfortunately often learn too late. I would strongly recommend that you have the discussion about authorship at an early stage with your supervisor to arrive at an agreement and set everyone's expectations from the outset. Sometimes it's very clear if it's your project and you are collecting and analysing your data and writing this up, then absolutely you should be the first author on this paper. However, sometimes it's less clear because you may only be involved in a smaller aspect of a larger body of work. And sometimes, tragically, some students are even left off the authorship altogether, which is very unfair. And this can be avoided by having this conversation early on before you get stuck into the work. Now, I want to talk to you about writing a paper. The typical anatomy of a scientific paper is title, abstract, introduction, methods, 
results and discussion. Some journals have stricter guidelines on how the paper should be formatted, but this is generally the typical anatomy of a paper. Make sure you have a target journal in mind and read through their guidelines before you start writing anything. Your supervisor can help you identify a suitable target journal. This is not the order I write papers in, i.e. title, abstract, introduction, methods, results and conclusion. Instead, I'm going to suggest my writing formula that I like to use. This may or may not work for you and it is simply my humble suggestion. After drafting a title, I go straight to results as this is the focus of the work. More importantly, I design my figures in the results section as the centerpiece of the entire paper. Next, I move on to the methods section, such that I present my methods in the order that I have just presented my results. This helps to create a logical flow to the work. And next, I write an introduction to introduce the reader to the subject and capture their attention, get them intrigued about where the knowledge gap is and make them want to continue reading. My introduction will also briefly complement the methods I have just written. After this, I'll go to the discussion, typically starting with a brief summary of the key findings, research and context, strengths and limitations, conclusion and future directions, for example. Again, check the journal guidelines to format your discussion appropriately. Then I write the abstract to summarise the background, methods, results and conclusion. Again, some journals have strict guidelines and may even want different sections or subsections to this. And finally, I review my title and make sure it efficiently describes the study and captures the focus of the study in light of having written the entire paper. I really like using this writing formula as it makes the paper flow better and is more of a pleasure to write. As I found previously, I was always having to go backwards and rewrite various sections of the paper until I changed the order in this way. Again, this may or may not work for everyone and it's simply my humble suggestion. I want to talk about supervisors before we move on. Your supervisor is the best person to help you on your journey to publish a paper. They should guide you with the relevant literature to read, research question formulation, data collection, data analysis, making sense of it all, journal selection, reviewing your work and revising it appropriately. If your supervisor is not helping you fulfil these criteria or is difficult to access or unsupportive, it can make the entire process impossible and unfortunately they are not a good supervisor for you. When you are early in your career, it is really important to identify and have a supportive and nurturing supervisor to guide you. So if you do find such a person, be sure to maintain a strong relationship because together you can produce really valuable and impactful work. Now, onto the final section of this podcast, which is how to win prizes. This section is more brief, but hopefully still useful. I'm going to focus on prizes for presentations as these are achievable even at a more junior level. In fact, some conferences even restrict some of their presentation prizes to medical students or junior doctors. First, you need to identify suitable target conferences to submit your work to. Your supervisor can help you with this. Look at previous winning examples which are often posted online on the conference website. Attending conferences and observing which presentations win a prize is also very helpful. Reflect on why you think that presentation was the best and how you can emulate some of these characteristics in your own presentation where applicable. 
Another tip is to diversify your presentations. For example, posts and oral, or different conference specialties, or even different categories within the same conference. I have a good example of this, and I'm so pleased I listened to the advice that I was given by my supervisor. The Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology, ARVO, hosts the world's largest vision meeting with over 10,000 delegates. I've presented at three ARVOs now, Seattle, Baltimore and Hawaii. For the most recent ARVO, Hawaii 2018, I wanted to submit my work as an oral presentation as I had done the year before in Baltimore. However, my supervisor encouraged me to submit my work to the members in training poster competition. I actually prefer oral presentations to poster presentations, but I listened to the advice of my supervisor. Next, she told me to submit my poster to the neuro-ophthalmology category instead of the retina category, which I wanted to submit to originally, but she told me my work will perform more strongly in the neuro-ophthalmology category. Again, I listened. Lo and behold, my abstract was shortlisted amongst 85 finalists for the poster competition, and I won the prize for the best neuro-ophthalmology poster at Arvo. This again was largely a testament to the guidance and foresight of my supervisor and mentor, Professor Irene Gottlob, who has world-leading expertise in paediatric neuro-ophthalmology. So just a few more tips for winning prizes. You must aim to win. It's extremely rare for anybody to accidentally win anything. However, as per the law of attraction, if you adopt a positive mindset, work hard, and visualize yourself winning a competition, you are far more likely to actually win the competition. Of course, there is a huge amount of luck involved and it can be very unpredictable with these sorts of prizes. So please don't be dismayed if you don't win the competition. Try, try again. Compete often and diversify to maximize your chances. There are of course other types of prizes you can aim for at an early stage in your career, including prizes for the highest mark in an exam, essay writing prizes, clinical image contests, video contests, and many more. Ideally, through your passion for your field and lots of hard work, a presentation is highly achievable, a publication is possible, and even winning a prize is possible. And hopefully this podcast has provided you with some helpful information and tips for achieving this. Thank you again so much for tuning into my first podcast. I'm grateful to the Scrubbed In team for inviting me to do this, which I must say I've enjoyed very much. And I wish you all the best for your careers, whatever route you decide to take. Thank you.